trust your gut. The first time I remember hearing those words, I was in grade five. I'd entered a science project that involved our solar system, and with it, many knitting needles, styrofoam balls, and lots of help from my dad. I told him I didn't think we needed to paint all the balls, and he said, trust your gut. If that's what I was feeling, then go for it. Well, I didn't paint the balls. I created a scale diagram and I entered it, and I got a B. Still a little bitter at a classmate that outshone me, literally by having a light bulb light up with some electricity that powered by human friction. Looking back over my career, I've often trusted my gut, and not only making small decisions, but some life-changing decisions. I rely on the information, but I also rely on my instincts, how I feel about the people I'm involved with, the situation, the inherent risk. Was I always right? No. Did my gut help me make decisions with confidence? Not always necessarily. Sometimes the opposite when I was going against the, the norm or the majority. But I did learn to trust it. And over my career, I wish I'd listened even more to my sixth sense. But it's not always easy. Trusting those inner whispers and feelings is easier said than done when you're in a situation where the evidence seems to be overwhelming or those in favor of vastly outnumber those who aren't. Or you're afraid to let others down or you're ashamed of reading a book by its cover. I, I shouldn't judge a person that quickly. My guest today is Jean Munchraff, and this is her story about not trusting her instincts, and it almost cost her a life at age 22. I reached up and gently wiped the blood away from my eyes. Despite my injuries, I was awed by the sight across the valley. As the sun set to the west, long shafts of golden light filtered through the dark clouds over Mount Russell. This is a beautiful place to die. And she wrote this incredible book. I'll make sure the link is in my notes, called If I Live to Morning. It's a profoundly moving story about her near-death experience on Mount Whitney and her decades-long quest for peace and healing. As the light faded from the peak, I wondered if the light of my own life would be extinguished next. I gazed at Mount Russell with such intensity that the image became burned forever into my memory. Put your headphones on. This is an inspiring story of courage, a human with an almost superhuman drive to survive, to heal, and to manifest a new reality. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Jean Munchraff, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thank you. I feel honored to be here. It's great to be part of your podcast. So in a minute or two, we're going to get to your wilderness adventure that turns into an absolute nightmare. But first, I want to establish your credentials on the mountains so that most of us will know that this adventure you're on was one that you felt was very much within your capability. So where did your love affair for mountains begin? I guess it started in my childhood. I grew up in the Rocky Mountains um, of Colorado. And, you know, often my family would take me camping in the summertime. And f skiing on downhill slopes was a huge passion, um, particularly of my father's. And, and my father would take myself and my sisters skiing. And I can't tell you how excited I was every time that happened. You know, I like I couldn't sleep the night before. And so I, I kind of lived for that. And then later we moved to Southern California and we still occasionally went skiing. But um, by the time I was an early teenager, my father would send me to a camp each summer, not for the whole summer, unfortunately, but you know, for a week or two here. And those summer camps 
were very formative for me as well. You know, I learned to backpack. I got to have independence outside. And I think that really gave me my early love for the mountains. And Let me just challenge something for a moment because you talk about it with such love. But some research I was doing on you, at age 13 and one of your first backpacking adventures, I think it was Girl Scouts, you get lost on this trail. And when you describe the story, I mean, you almost with a sense of calmness, but 13-year-old getting lost in the dark. Just tell us a little bit about that story because I probably would have stopped backpacking then and somehow or other that didn't change your mind. <laughs> no, it didn't change my mind. Our Girl Scout troop got kind of separated because there was um, a girl on the trip that was very sick with mountain sickness that was straggling and I actually went back to help her. And as a result, by the time we got to where we were supposed to meet our group, uh, they weren't there and it was getting dark. So we camped and I left her to go try to find the Girl Scout troop and had no luck. So that's why I was stumbling around in the dark. And eventually, um, I did wind up not finding the group, but finding the girl who I'd kind of put in a camp to be safe. And yeah, I was, a, I guess, a little frightened, but, you know, I was more concerned about just taking care of this girl. And so that wasn't really that daunting of an experience. In the moment, it was sure a little frightening, but it kind of gave me strength, if nothing else. You know, I feel like when we have challenges, we can either let them overwhelm us or we can build on that as experience for the next time. So maybe we have better judgment in the future. And it was just, you know, all, all, all's well that ends well. As you grow older, you know, a lot of times kids, when they leave home for university, it's to escape their situation. In your case, you know, the love of mountains and your, you know, the sense of adventure. Where did you go to school and did you put that sort of on hold for a while or even within university, you still felt that one of the best places to be would be the, the outdoors? Well, um, my first year of college was actually, uh, in Kansas and then I went to San Diego State University in Southern California. But the entire time I was in college, it was all about getting away from the city, away from college when I didn't have to be in school. And, you know, I was the one who never went home for Christmas vacations or the spring breaks. I was in the mountains and pursuing a lot of adventure. And then I think where I got even more experience on top of that is during my summers in college, I worked as a seasonal uh, park ranger for the National Park Service. And so that meant on my weekends, I had full access to the wilderness. And in fact, my first job, I worked in Glacier National Park, not the one in Canada, but in the United States and Montana, and I was a wilderness ranger. I lived in a remote log cabin, um, so I got a lot of experience dealing with bears and other things, and so that built my confidence as well. Did your parents have to have a photograph of you to know who you are? Because it sounds like you're never home. Like you're just. I mean, <laughs> were, did they encourage it? Were they like just excited the fact that you would forgo a holiday dinner or a Christmas dinner in, in the sense of finding solitude with bears in a mountain? Well, um, I wouldn't say they encouraged it once I was in. In, uh, college, but they accepted it. You know, I mean, they're beautiful people and just accepting me who, you know, for who I am, I'm quite different than the rest of my family, but I, I kind of follow my own path and, and that's okay with them. And I think now they enjoy, uh, hearing about my trips and, you know, being part of that. And they're certainly very proud of my accomplishments. So one of your adventures in university, you meet your boyfriend, Ken. And Ken's going to become a very big part of the show in a little bit. But it seems like almost the first second you met him, he was, he's talking about this dream. How did that all come about? Because very often strangers spend a lot of time before they start sharing what's, what's you know, hidden inside their mind in terms of things to do. Yeah. And it's especially odd, um, since you don't know Ken, um, he's very 
very, he was very, very shy. Uh, I mean, really shy. And we were on a weekend outing with the University Recreation Club for a, a weekend of rock climbing in the mountains. And we were actually riding in the back of a pickup truck because in those days you could do that, you know. And we just started talking, you know, it was uh, fall. So it was kind of like, well, what did you do this summer? What did you do? And he started talking about his hike on the John Muir Trail, which I had hoped to do that summer before I met him and I was enthralled by his description and he was excited to have someone to share it with. So that's kind of how we met. And uh, he's telling this wonderful experience that he had. And then he just stops and he looks me straight in the eye and he says, but my dream is to ski the John Muir Trail. And I thought, wow, that's a big undertaking. And then he just looked me like, pierced right into me with his eyes. And he said, I need someone to do that with. And I knew that very moment that was me. I mean, I just knew it. So, you know, I did wasn't, you know, sure how that would come about. But I just I had that inner knowing. Yeah, we're doing this trip together. So one of the chords that's going to play through this episode is the sense of instinct or gut sense or sixth sense. At that moment, when he said that, was it love at first sight? Or was it just I'm just in a spell that I haven't felt before, or was it just, this is just crazy talk in the back of a pickup truck? (laughs) Well, it was not love at first sight, uh, simply because I had just broken up from another relationship. So the last thing I wanted was another relationship at the time. But, you know, I love a good adventure, and here's somebody that is interested in pursuing a good adventure. And I felt, since I had grown up skiing, I could probably do this. So maybe if I didn't hike the John Muir Trail, I'd ski the John Muir Trail. And so... The the intuition part was more that I need someone to do it with and and knowing myself that it was going to be a joint effort. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. That evening was pretty rough in the sense that we were injured, myself, life-threatening injuries. And I made a vow to myself. And that vow was, if I live until morning... I'm going to live my greatest dreams. My guest today is Jean Muncraft. Venture author, speaker, and philosopher shares her story, If I Live Until Morning. We're fast-forwarding a little bit, but it's now April 14th, 1982. You're 22 years old. You and Ken are flying to Fresno on a small commercial plane. His dream to ski the entire John Moon Trail during the winter is now your collective dream. So let's just set this adventure for my audience because the John Muir Trail could be 100 yards or it could be 200 miles. So (laughs) let them know exactly what it means and why it's not, when you say skiing, we're not talking about getting top of a mountain skiing to the bottom. This is a very different adventure. Yeah, this is a winter expedition. So I remember looking out the window of that small airplane and seeing the Sierra Nevada mountains in California stretching as far as I can see. These are serrated rugged peaks. And I'm thinking, can I really do this? And I was like, well, you got to give it a try. So the John Muir Trail, uh, for reference for your listeners, it starts in Yosemite Valley and it finishes uh, on the summit of Mount Whitney. Of course, you can go north or south or south to north. And it's 340 kilometers long. It crosses very rugged terrain. And, you know, if you go hiking in the summer, you actually have a dirt path, the trail that you simply follow as well as the signs. But this is under snow under a lot of snow. So we're finding our way navigating, you know, with map and compass and crossing this white landscape. It's very, very steep. Over the course of that um, period of 340 kilometers, we had to cross 
I think it's around 10 mountain passes on the John Muir Trail, and they vary anywhere. I put everything here in meters for you. Uh, they vary anywhere from three to 4,000 meters. And then we had to do a couple other passes to get food. So 14 high elevation passes, we gained 48,000 vertical feet. I'm trying to think of what that is. Let's see, that's uh, 14,000 meters. So it, this is very arduous <laughs> on skinny Nordic skis, three pin um, bindings, little boots that are like leather tennis shoes. They were described as almost bowling shoes. I mean, yeah, listen, they look like bowling <laughs> somebody, shoes. Somebody <laughs> on a podcast and I laugh and they said, these are, because you'd brought them into the studio, these are not winter boots. <laughs> Boots. These are bowling shoes. They look shoes. like bowling shoes. And we're carrying 35 pounds on our backs on with these skinny skis. This is not an easy uh, undertaking by any means. And did you do any physical training or was it just your physically and mentally fit individual so you felt you could just jump in on this trail and make it happen? There was um, a lot of planning and a lot of training, uh, both of which occurred probably over an intensive period of about two and a half to three years. And as far as the physical training went, um, I, I like to ride my bicycle. So I was riding my bike all over San Diego, where I was living at the time. And uh, I would go jogging. And I don't really like to jog, but I did jog because I, I needed to get strong. I needed to get fit. And uh, then we also would go skiing whenever we could. So we would go to the mountains, do ski trips. We spent one of our um, Christmas breaks skiing around uh, Crater Lake in Oregon. Another time we skied on the lower slopes of Mount Rainier. And then we did a lot of um, Trans-Sierra uh, backcountry ski trips. That would be about a week long. So we knew the Sierra backcountry already in the wintertime, and we're getting very familiar with that. And I think probably one of the most important training things we did is um, I needed to get really good with using an ice axe, uh, which is a piece of mountaineering equipment. And we would go up onto some slopes on the mountains and practice falling and losing control as you slide down the mountain and stopping with our ice axes. And that probably saved both of our lives later on in the trip. <laughs> I'm not an adventurer. When I hear this is your idea of a, a practice session, is sliding down a mountain and trying to stop yourself with an ice pick. I, I, I apologize for smiling because it's in disbelief. So, and how about food? I mean, to do a trail like that, you must be out there for two or three weeks. Yeah, we um, planned for about a month. It didn't take that long, but you know, it's better to have everything that you need and more, maybe. So, for food, we you know we had to plan this trip very carefully. We would have our living room floor covered with topographic maps. We had to figure out how much we might ski in a day, where we would camp and have shelter in the trees with our tent, and how many calories we would need a day, and uh, the food. So we wound up um, getting those uh, white plastic drums. They're five gallons. You see them in paint stores or maybe at restaurants, you know. We got four of those, and we stuffed each of the uh, barrels with these uh, about about a week's worth of food and fuel. And so these were our food caches. And then what we did prior to the trip is we two of those four caches, we skied into the wilderness and we tied them up in a tree with a note on them saying, don't take this food. It's literally our, going to be our lifeline. And of course, there were no GPS units then. We're talking 1982. And so we had to make sure whenever we got back, which would be a month or two later, that we would be able to ski exactly to a given tree at a given place and find that food. And then the other two caches, we skied out of the mountains to get our food at some places that we had put them. So you're about a third of your way in this trip. You're describing it as wonderful skiing. And all of a sudden, this inner voice starts screaming at you that something bad is going to happen. 
So tell us about that. Well, when we were getting ready to depart for the trip, um, and then when we were on the first part of the trip, I just had that sense when you're, when you're embarking on an adventure outside, there's always that element of the unknown and maybe going into unfamiliar terrain. And th- I think the meaning of an adventure is that you don't know what will happen along the way. And I had that mixture of both excitement and, oh, I hope everything will work out kind of thing. But I wasn't really concerned about it. That that intuition that something might go wrong actually happened about halfway into the trip when I was on Silver Pass. Um, so that'd be maybe a third of the way into the John Muir Trail. And I just had this gut feeling that it literally just came up and into my mind. And that thought was, something terrible is going to happen on this trip. And I I did a little bit of inner conversation with myself, like, well, what could that be? What is it? And, and uh, I didn't know. And I just knew something terrible was going to happen. I didn't know when or where. And then I was really struggling with how do I respond to this? I'm a very intuitive person and I do tend to listen to my intuition. But as you've said, you know, sometimes you can't tell intuition from fear. And I think my struggle was, Ken was a very logical, more science-based person. And I knew if I said, hey, um, I know he spent three years training, preparing, all of this. I just think we should stop. We, something's going to go wrong. I, I just had this feeling he would find that unacceptable. And so I just kind of squelched it in my mind and it would bubble up every now and then and I would squelch it and I continued on and probably after a few days I was able to let go of that feeling but uh, in hindsight you put it aside you're moving on you're about a day away from finishing this incredible adventure and you have to read this book I mean I'm because with the time limits I can't talk about you know again you think of her just skiing and whistling I mean they're waist deep in snow and they're scrambling over ice and they're places you should never be at but you're a day away you're a week ahead of schedule it's going so well and what happens well we are finishing up on the summit of Mount Whitney we've actually had a Great trip, wonderful trip, other than, you know, we had hardships along the way. But when we get to the summit of Mount Whitney, this is the highest point in the lower 48. And uh, Mount Whitney is 4,300 meters. And all of a sudden, a storm just comes out of nowhere. And being on a high summit like that is the worst place you could be in a lightning storm. So it's lightning all around us. My hair is literally standing up. It's starting to snow. And we're scared because we could be killed by lightning any second. And so our original plan was to head towards Trail Crest, which is the summer route down the mountain. But that is on a long ridge that would have taken us into the storm. So we decided we needed to get off the summit fast and we would go down the north face. And to get off the summit fast, that's just because lightning is obviously just, you're, you're an absolute target up there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lightning, it will hit the highest point And we were the tallest things around. So uh, a, a definite death threat for sure. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. If you think snow and lightning hitting the highest peak in the 48 that you happen to be on is bad, wait to hear what happens next. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, host of the radio show and podcast Chatter That Matters. Did you know that only one in five youth with a mental health illness can get access to the care they need? Well, a big shout out to the RBC Foundation and RBC Future Launch for supporting over 150 youth mental health organizations. 
and in doing so, they help youth and their families get the care they need and deserve. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Jean Muncraft. She's not only spent her lifetime in the mountains, she's dedicating all the profits from her books to preserving them. Okay, so I just now you're starting to make your way down, and this is not a route you've planned for. So tell us what happens next. We decided we go down this north face, and I should clarify for your listeners, we are not skiing, okay? This is mountaineering at this point, all right? Uh, it's very steep terrain. So we have our skis and our poles strapped onto our backpacks, and Ken goes over the edge first. And I remember asking him, like, is is this really going to work? You know, and he's like, yes, we can do this. And he's cutting uh, steps with his ice axe to put his little boots in. And then he starts what's called a hanging glissade. And I brought an ice axe. I know your listeners can't see this, but I thought it might help you because you might be able to explain this. This is an ice axe. It's got a very sharp edge serrated. And when you're using it as a self-arrest tool, you're using the pick into the mountain, you're hanging off of it. So each of us have one of these. Our entire weight is hanging off of a half an inch metal blade in the snow. And we got 35, 40 pounds on our back. And you kind of steer the ice axe. How much you push it in and pull it out will determine the movement and the direction and speed. And so Ken is hanging off his ice axe. Um, I'm progressing down. And then I notice at the corner of my eye that he changes position into what's called a sitting glissade. So that means he's not hanging uh, literally off of his ice axe. He's moving, he's sitting, and he's using it kind of as a break if he needs to, to control his speed. And the next thing I know, there's this blue blur, and he just flies down the mountain. I can't even see him anymore. And I'm terrified. (laughs) That would be an understatement. I don't know where he is. I don't know if he's alive. And so I start working my way down the mountain. Uh, I got to believe each step is like an hour. I mean, when you're all alone, what time of the day is it? Is it getting dark? Or? Um, right now, it is probably mid-afternoon, and the storm is picking up more. It's getting windy. It's snowing. And my concern is, first and foremost, for Ken. I don't know if he's alive or if he's injured, how injured he is. But then the second part of that is in his pack was our camping stove, our fuel, our tent, all the things that I would need to survive if he didn't. You know, I knew I had to find him. And so I took my time and I, I actually had my inner voice started coaching me. I started hearing it say to me, you can do this. Concentrate. Don't blow it. The only way I could mark the, my progress going down the mountain, because my nose was pressed against the snow, I was hanging under my ice axe. I couldn't look around to see am I higher or lower in relation to the mountains around me because I, if I stopped concentrating, I was going to fall. Looked straight ahead and kept on going down and until I got to terrain that I could actually stand as opposed to hang. And then I looked down and I could see Ken waving at me. And so I knew at least he was alive. How far had he fallen? Well, it's, it's a miracle. He fell 243 meters. How did he survive? He bounced on the snow, but he also sailed over these cliffs that were almost uh, what put me to an end later on. So it was just a miraculous. He landed in soft snow. I'm really amazed this day. He had minor hairline fractures and some skin abrasions, and that's it. (laughs) And so how did you reunite? Because he's still below you. He left his backpack 
where he fell, which is an important part of the story. And then he works his way up. Now he couldn't climb up the cliffs he had fallen. So he kind of traversed the mountain off towards the east and worked his way back up and over to me. And that was very helpful because he kind of knew a way down. And then we were able to reunite a uh, very joyful moment to say the least. And then well, um, hold on now. We're not letting <laughs> this one go because this is, this is right out of a Disney script. It wasn't just he reunited. What else? did he ask you when he was up there? Well, he, as we were working our way down together, he started complaining his feet were really cold. He had frostbite. And so we sat down and I took his shoes and socks off and I put them in the armpits of my body to warm his feet and just were kind of holding each other. It's a really desperate moment. And he, he starts crying and he looks into my eyes and he says, will you marry me? <laughs> you know, I didn't get the usual reaction. You know, most couples, when they have that moment of engagement, it's one of the highlights of their lives. While I did say yes, and I and I meant it, and I was excited, I had to push that aside. Like, we're in a life and death situation here. I got to get down the mountain. We're only halfway down. So you start making your way down the mountain. You've warmed up his feet. And then what happens next? We get to a point where we're above these cliffs. And if we can down climb just 20 feet of rock, then we can get to this ramp that Ken discovered that would allow us an exit above the big cliffs. And he said, wait here, I'll go get the rope in the pack. And so he's going to go down to the pack. And so I'm waiting up there and it's it's twilight now. And I'm figuring, well, I'm strong. Um, I'm at the peak of my physical fitness. And so I start to down climb. And pretty soon I couldn't move up and I couldn't move down. And I fell. I bounced off the rocks and I wound up falling about 50 meters. But of course, I was hitting things. If I fell 50 meters into a net, I'd be scared out of my mind. <laughs> you describe it as that you didn't feel any pain. You just this horrific sound of your body crashing against rocks. What happens is there's kind of three primary trauma responses. There's the fight response. Well, there was nothing I could fight. There's the flight response where you run away. Well, there's nothing I could run away from. The only response available was kind of that freeze response. Obviously, I kind of froze. I pulled inward. I think a good analogy might be a, a soldier at war, and they've gotten wounded, but they still get up and they fight um, because they have to, and they don't really feel the pain until later because all the chemicals in your body are going into that survival mode. And so I did hear the sound of thump, thump, thump on the rocks, and I did hear my ice axe scraping the metal on the rocks. But I didn't feel anything. And I think that's because my system shut down and I was trying to survive and I didn't feel that pain. And of course, part of that fall, I was unconscious. Now, this is where I find the story where you go from human to superhuman. And I do not mean that in any frivolous manner because, I mean, we're dealing with a lot of fractures. We're dealing with lots of blood loss. Ken finds you, eighth of a mile, he's dragging you to get you to, to a tent. When you got inside that tent, did you just think that was your coffin? Before this accident on the trip, I was always complaining how small this tent was, and I already had nicknamed it the coffin. <laughs> and then it was definitely the coffin. But yeah, Ken dragged me across the slope, and I was kind of stumbling, and I knew I was seriously injured. And he um, went then back to get his backpack, and I remember laying in the snow, and the last rays of 
of the sun were breaking through the clouds before the sunset. And I saw Mount Russell. And I remember thinking, wow, this is a beautiful place to die. And I'm wiping the blood off my head. And then he sets up the tent and we're in the tent and we are on the mountainside. And so we are basically at 4,000 meters camped on the mountainside in this little tent. I asked Ken, to stay awake that night because um, I was in severe medical shock. I was losing a lot of blood. I had multiple fractures in my spine, in my pelvis. I had a head injury. And I wanted him to make sure my breathing didn't stop. But the interesting thing as far as that superhuman element that you talk about, it started happening right before I went to sleep. I felt this presence over me. It's an energetic presence, which I labeled in my book, Death with a capital D. That's when I made this vow to myself. If I live until morning, I will live my greatest dreams. You know, hence the title of my book, If I Live Until Morning. So then the next few days unfold and Ken and I are lying in the tent and it's storming out. It's it's a full-on blizzard. And we're trying to figure out how we're going to survive this. Remember, this is 1982. There's no cell phones. There's no GPS units. There's no emergency locator beacons. And you're a, a week ahead of schedule, so no one knows where you are. Nobody knows where we are. So being ahead of schedule is not a good thing because no one thought anything of it. We plot out our survival, but we are going to have to stay until this storm subsides. And for me, I had this mantra that just arose again from my gut. And that was, I'm going to live. I'm going to live. I'm going to live. And I said that mantra in my head. I didn't say it out loud because I didn't want to frighten Ken. I said that for days whenever I was awake. When the weather cleared and we start hiking out, it takes a couple more days. It's still a long ways out. It's really rugged terrain. And as it turns out, you've got gangrene setting in in your left buttock because you're, it's not getting blood. You're broken. One thing I learned on the mountain was your mind is everything. You have to set your mind with intention, which won't necessarily overcome everything, but the mind is very, very powerful. I concentrated on every step. I was terrified my bones would shift. I might get paralyzed at any moment. But there were two things that kept me going. One is, if I was going to die, which I was going to if I didn't make the effort, I was at least going to die making the effort. And the other thing which I really subscribe to in life is having a dream, having a purpose, having a reason to live. I had a dream to see the Himalayas. And every time I would collapse and think, I can't go, I just can't do this. And I'd be in pain. I would look up at the mountains and I would remember that dream and I would visualize myself in the Himalayas and I'd pull myself out and I'd just keep going over and over again. I wanted to live. I'm 22. So you get to this parking lot after five days and Ken's so excited, a car pulls up. The first car you see after all this time refuses to help. The second one comes along, newborn baby, car's packed to the rafter with the possessions. He empties out his car, makes room for you and Ken, leaves his wife and his newborn baby in the parking lot and takes you to what you describe as a hospital, but later on find out more of it's an old age clinic. He's my unsung hero. So if I've learned anything else from all the chronic pain and challenges I've had as a result of my fall... It is gratitude, and I have made it a point to find people that have really made a difference in my life. It took me 30 years to find my urologist who helped me to say thank you. I don't know where he is. We lost his contact information in the emergency room. Uh, all I know is he was from Utah, and he was moving to California, and he took this little side strip on this day and, and really made a difference in our lives. 
You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. As life has proceeded and I've had chronic pain and various obstacles, okay, I survived this event, I'm not winning. I can get through anything. Jean Moncraft is my guest today. She's an author, speaker, and she's written this incredible memoir, If I Live Until Morning. And after hearing her story, I question whether I would have. You dance with death. You survive through your spirit, your matches, your intent. If I live until morning, I will live my greatest dreams. And you've spent your life chasing those dreams. So tell us what's happened afterwards, because I think it's this beautiful part of your story. The biggest dream after the accident was to go to the Himalayas. Um, That was transformative for me. I met different cultures and had to really reevaluate everything I had been taught to believe and to kind of assimilate that information. And I met a lot of refugees that were suffering immensely, and yet they seemed to be able to cope better than many of us here in the West do with our own challenges. And that really got my attention. It inspired me, and um, I put that attention into learning more about it. So I started reading about Eastern philosophy and trying to make sense of my accident and kind of how this all fit into the universe, and also wound up pursuing more dreams of going back to the Himalayas and working in the Himalayas and traveling as much as I can. And as you're striking out on your own and really understanding who you are and what you want to do with life... You choose to return to Mount Whitney. What was that like? It was interesting. You know, when I left Mount Whitney with Ken, I did not look back. I didn't didn't ever want to see Mount Whitney ever again. It was my enemy. However, uh, fast forward several decades later, and I've decided I want to heal on every level, not just physically, but emotionally, uh, spiritually, just everything. And I saw a trauma therapist, and he was the one that actually suggested I write a book to process what had happened. And I decided, okay, it's time to face my enemy, to go back so that I can move forward with my life. When I got there and I stood at the base of those cliffs, uh, to be honest, I started screaming. I started bawling my eyes out. It was really traumatic. But uh, at the same time, it was cathartic. And we did find one of Ken's broken skis. And I stood on what I had called death's campsite. And I realized a really important element in my healing. And that was I hadn't forgiven myself. I made these poor choices along the way, and I needed to find peace. And the only way I was going to find peace was to actually acknowledge that, you know, I made some poor choices. I did the best I could under those circumstances at age 22, but I didn't need to have that imprison me anymore. I could just forgive myself. It was time to move forward. That was a great trip. It was really healthy for me. You said earlier that you were very different than your family. But when your sister's dying of ALS, she wants to die in your home staring at the mountains. That must have been one of the hardest but most magical times you've ever spent with your your sister. Definitely. Uh, My sister Debbie and I were very close. And then she uh, basically decided to stop eating and she wanted to come to my house and die in my house and see the mountains. And I, I felt a little daunted by that at first, like, wow, am I really up for this? It's That's a lot to cope with. But I had my Buddhist practice and my meditation. And, you know, I had already realized how powerful the mind is. I had already gotten through 
a lot of um, chronic pain. I had 18 years of chronic pain. I had lost many friends had died and I had gotten divorced and I had also had to get over an addiction to pain medication. And so I had conquered a lot. And I thought, well, you have to do this. This is her dying wish. You know how important your dying wish was. And I think what was really magical about it is right seconds before she died, she opened her eyes after 15 hours of being unconscious. She looked to both sides of the bed to make sure her family was there, which is what she wanted. And then she looked straight ahead out the window at Long's Peak, which is the big mountain here, and took her last breath and died. And that was exactly what she wanted. So it was a difficult time, but it was also very meaningful to facilitate her last wish. And it was also very beautiful. I'm I'm glad I was there with her and I could help her realize that dream. You know, Gene, I always end my shows with the three takeaways. You were given such an incredible gift. Because you're gifting it back time and time again, and not just with your sister, but I imagine so many people you've come across in your life that haven't got an ability to cope. I think that your context is so important to them because you've been there. But I love what you say that the mind is everything. And if you have the right intent and you're dreaming of the Himalayas when you're step away from just giving up to exhaustion is just such a powerful one. I also like what you said about circumstances can make you stronger. Fear's not always a bad thing. And I think that's a great lesson for life because today a lot of us are facing very challenging circumstances. It's easy to be up on your back feet, but to realize that those are just situations that we can learn from, I think is, is fantastic. And then the fact that you have found peace through a life overcoming pain addiction, losing a very close sibling, traveling all over the world, I just think it's just wonderful that you never lost sight of your vow, I'm going to make it to morning and I'm going to live my dreams. I know that there's going to be so many people that are going to order your book because of it. So I want to thank you for joining me in Chatter That Matters. I really, you know, I struggled with putting my my book out because I'm kind of a private person, but nonetheless, I feel by sharing things, we can help others. And I felt that by sharing my story, I could inspire people to think about how short life is. We don't know how long we have to live and that we should be living our dreams because is it not um, either family or other relationships we have, as well as living our dreams that give our lives meaning and value. Also, I really wanted to give people the courage that if I can overcome so many obstacles, they can too, because we all have what I call our Mount Whitney's. We all have our challenges. And I really wanted to encourage people to go inward and find solutions and move from the victim mentality to how can I be a better person because this happened to me. Yeah, we don't like what happened to us. That's that's a given, but we can use it as an opportunity to transform ourselves. And so that was something I wanted to do and I still feel is really important in communicating with others. And I know even with my book, I wanted it to be about more than myself and I'm actually donating 100% of my profits to non to charity purposes. So it's not all about us. It's about bigger things. Joining me now is Amy Deacon, one of Canada's leading thinkers in mental health. She's brilliant. She's my go-to person. She's also an entrepreneur. She's a founder and CEO of Toronto Wellness Counseling. Amy, I've got another great show for you. Jean Moncraft, and she is pictured as a young woman and, and at the top of the summit, a day away from finishing their trip. And then tragedy hits when a lightning storm blasts the top of the mountain, and she falls on her way down as you're trying to scramble off of it. What I'm fascinated by is she said, the only way I survived is by 
saying to myself, if I do live to the morning, I will live my dreams. How important is it to have a dream that can sometimes take you beyond the current circumstances and help you power through difficult challenges? Her story reminds me of that quote about you never know how strong you are until being strong is your only choice. For some people that have exceptional resilience and exceptional minds that in some ways are trained to tolerate discomfort, to navigate suffering, to breathe through each moment by moment, they are able to say, okay, listen, if you make it through these next 12 hours, we'll reassess. But it is literally a a moment by moment process that I can't even speak to the strength and resilience and mental fortitude that it requires to stay present and not give up during that. I mean, for someone that studies the mind the way you do, wouldn't it be unbelievable if we could unlock that switch in everyday circumstance? I mean, she spends five days, two days lying in a tent and three days literally walking, sometimes in waist-deep snow. And she says, if I fell asleep or if I moved the wrong way, I could be paralyzed. But I kept dreaming of seeing the Himalayas one day. I think that we have to remember that our brains really are wired for survival. And so they can do some pretty incredible things. You know, even if you think about it from a mental health perspective, so often we're dealing with clients that have been through unspeakable trauma. In those moments, Tony, they dissociate. Their brain's like, not you can't be here. You got to go. Like it's it, our brains are wildly protective. I think that when somebody's survival instincts are matched by an internal motivation to live, that can produce an unbelievable powerhouse within ourselves. Time and time again, when I've seen people go through these major life changes, sometimes you know it could be as horrific as a, a refugee, and other other times it could be in her situation, they tend to seek out wisdom away from their norm you know in this case she's in the Himalayas and trying to understand the eastern mentality and and how to approach life do you think that the silver lining in facing these situations is it does open your mind to a world beyond the one you thought you were confident and comfortable in? 100%. There are sometimes things that we go through in life that literally bring us to our knees, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and we realize how little control we have over this crazy, crazy life. And often after we've gotten through something like that, we do seek almost a greater sense of what are we doing here? What is this all about? And so that's when we'll see people lean into whether it's philosophy or religion, spirituality, to help make sense and help navigate this crazy world that we're all going through. Amy Deacon, always a pleasure. If you're ever interested in what Amy's doing and her team, uh, please reach out to Toronto Wellness Counseling. Thanks again for joining me on the on the show. So happy to be here, Tony. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.